Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Politics has been an important subject for movies since the beginnings of the industry. Elizabeth Haas, co-author of the book Projecting Politics, Political Messages in American Films, reviews the history of politics as a subject, as well as how current political events shaped many movies, including some without a specific political theme. The second edition was published in 2015 by Routledge. Welcome to Elizabeth Haas. Hi, Elizabeth. It's great to talk to you. Hi. It's nice to hear from you. I have always enjoyed watching political films, even those that went way outside the bounds of reality, so I was happy to find your book. But let's get some background. What are your educational and writing experiences, particularly those that led you to this project? I got my Ph.D. in English Language and Literature, was the department, um, but I did my dissertation on film from the University of Michigan. And my brother is Peter J. Haas, and he does political science. So together, we worked on this book. Right, because you're, this is actually the second edition. You were a contributor to the first edition. Yes. But you indicate that you're the sole author of the new material in the That's second right. edition. That's right. So when did you decide, though, that the book needed updating? That's a good question. About four years ago, I think, I noticed the increase in what I considered to be politically relevant films, and the book started to feel like it needed updating for that reason alone. Also, I thought I had a lot to contribute to the introduction of the material and a way of making the argument that political film could be considered a genre. For one thing, a couple books had come out also trying to establish political film as a genre. They both invoked the original text, and it seemed clear to me that the time was ripe for greater consideration of the topic and really weighing in more on the idea that political film could be considered a genre, which I don't think is that surprising to Most people, I think most people think that there is such a thing as political film and they know it when they see it. But within the field of film studies, there is not as much agreement. And genre itself is, of course, a contested concept and and field. So in the past few years, along with what I consider a rise in political films, there's been increased interest in genre itself when it comes to film. I think one of the points you make regularly is it's not just those films that are overtly political, but it's also the films that may have something underlying, the political underlying aspect is, is there too. So that's why I think the the way you try to work through the, def- the definition of what a political film is, is, is an important aspect of the overall concept you're trying to do with the book. Yes. And it's interesting too, Because I think most film scholars, academic film scholars, would argue, as we do, that all films, in a sense, have a politics to them. 
It can be the politics of the production, the political economy behind the production. It can be just the portrayal of sociopolitical issues, whether they're important to the storyline or not, in the sense of films around identity politics, for example. But there's less of a kind of overlap between this generalized political sense in film scholarship about the meaning and function of films and political science, on the other hand, which uh, is much more concerned with political life and political agency and uh, maybe, a, for lack of a better way of saying it, a cleaner concept of a political film. So the political science field might consider the overtly political films political. And on the other end, the film scholar is going to have a more loose sense that all films have a political value or valence to them. And we're trying to kind of carve a path that brings those two things together in a conversation around, okay, it's all well and good to say all films have some kind of political import to them, or it's all well and good to say that, yes, there's this vibrant history of political filmmaking in the, in the U.S., even in Hollywood. But what does that really mean? What does it look like practically? And how do we decide the films that are greater or, or lesser in their political impact. So those are some of the things that we're trying to look at in the book. Many of the things I've read about the book, it, it, it had popularity as a textbook. Was the plan all along for it to be a textbook per se, or is there more to it than there's just that when, when the book was originally developed? Um, I, I do think that it had in mind a student audience and a way of getting students to see films from a politically alert perspective. But all along, there was also a desire to speak to a broader audience so that it wouldn't be limited by the sense that it's use begins and ends in a classroom. That's good, because that's the way I looked at it. I, I, I As a book by itself, without worrying about the classroom aspect of it, I found it to be particularly interesting and fascinating the way you developed it. So of the new, how much new material is in this second edition? Would, do you have a sense as to how much new is actually in it? Oh, there's a lot that's new. Um, there's two completely new chapters. The book itself is a larger formatted book than the original to account for the um, added material. Mm -hmm. The first three chapters where we sort of lay out the methodology of the book uh, were greatly revised and expanded. Um, partly that's me bringing in my background as a trained film person um, to some of what the original work sort of gestured toward but never really completed or didn't seem to have as much substance to it as I wanted to see in there. Um, and then the topical chapters on political documentaries, race, film and the politics of race, mm -hmm. uh, women, politics and film, and then the disaster chapter. A lot is new in those. Um, kind of just updating and expanding the research in those sections. Right. Now, the, the section that deals with films uh, decade by decade, much of that is the same as right, the first right. edition. Except for but, the newest chapter. Except for the newest chapter, that's right. right. 
So just, I think us being responsible for it, right. I'll, I'll say there, I think it's a substantially uh, different book or, or, or let's say um, added value. Um, right. there, there's a lot of new work in it. Well, especially since, as you're pointing out, it's the rise of the, the increase in political film or overtly political films that have shown it to be an important work to continue to to study. So therefore, certainly would expect a lot of new material, although the historical uh, context is still important, too. And you obviously kept that part. Yes. So the first part of the book, as you mentioned, discusses discusses the overall process of studying political films, and that's the part where I can imagine being particularly useful in a textbook setting, but I think just as an overall concept as well. What are some of the important aspects uh, that you and your authors developed, your co-authors developed as the definition of a political film? Part of what we did was um, we, we worked on what we considered a political typology for films so that you could consider various aspects to any given film and kind of give it a place on a spectrum of political filmmaking. So we, what, one thing that's important to this typology of political film that is not always considered in more um, traditional film studies is the idea of the intent of the in the making of the film, the political filmmaking intent. I mean, sorry, I'm not saying that correctly. Um, the intention of the filmmakers mm-hmm. in wanting to make a political statement is something that we consider important at the same time as, and, and we consider that having a role in how you estimate the political value or, or um, political nature of a given film. On the other hand, we also make room in the typology for political content also being high, but not necessarily being correlated to the intentions of a filmmaker being high. Just take for an example a film like uh, The Campaign, which was a comedy, and it was obviously about politics because it featured as its main characters two people running against each other for a, in a race. Um, and how they go about campaigning uh, for that political seat. Now, you could argue that the intentions of the filmmakers is high because the content is so obviously political. But because it's a comedy, we would argue that the political intent is diminished by its comedic aspects. Certainly there's a political message to the film, and the, the message seems to be that there's too much money in politics but how it achieves getting that message across is through such kind of broad comedy and uh, that it isn't even satire to a degree that you would expect. Um, so that balances out how you think of it as a, a politically relevant piece of uh, filmmaking. Yeah, I would think I can, I can think of a number of examples. You brought the campaign, which is a good one, but I can also think of things like Dr. Strangelove, which has the same issue you've just pointed out. The heavy satire and, and comedy aspects, does it outweigh the political aspects that were clearly part of the story? Right. Absolutely. Um, although I would, in my estimation, that film weighs more towards the um, politically uh, robust 
end of the spectrum or typology, if only because it does have a very broad humor to it, but the satire is so incisive and addresses such existential issues that it seems a more politically motivated and biting. And as and if you consider the filmmaking uh, people behind it as well, you understand their intentions to be high. Whereas the campaign doesn't have that kind of pedigree to it. And the comedy isn't, it, it's a, you know, certainly it's about an important issue, money and politics, but doesn't pack the relevance of nuclear weaponry. Um, and the question of, of, you know, the extent to which we would go to drastic means to support any particular political policy. But you're right. I mean, they both, how you see their comedy either vitiating or raising their political profile, there's a way to think about that that we talk about in our book um, in terms of this typology and where you could assess filmmaker intent and how comedy plays into that intent and then the the content i just as we'll talk about it when we start talking about the decades by decades it just seemed to me that do you feel or has it been your experience that this is something that has become more obvious as time has gone on or did we see films years ago meaning previous decades Mm -hmm. even going back into the early parts of filmmaking 30s 40s and even before that it was less. It was less overt, and it was the other way that you were more likely to see political points made. You know, I think that the, you, that you could sort of chart a rise and fall of the prominent, obvious political filmmaking, and the times when that's been dwarfed. And we go into a lot of detail around that, especially, for example, when the um, production code was in effect. It really had a chilling effect on overt political content. Um, movies from the really early part of the 20th century did have a strong politics to them, many of them. The, this also was at about the time that the industry was starting to become an actual industry and, and become a, a solidified around a vertical, integrated uh, system of production and exhibition. But there was a vibrance to that kind of filmmaking that addressed class issues uh, in particular, that it almost had a a very left-leaning spirit to it that eventually faded for a number of reasons, two of them being the more money there was in the filmmaking industry, the more conservative it became politically. And then the other in tandem with that is the uh, censorship the films and what became a sort of safe topic uh, and what was kind of mandated literally in the code, you know, respect for the flag, respect for civic authority, uh, respect for religious institutions. All of that became mandated in the commercial filmmaking of the time. So you could see that as a dampening political content. And that, I mean, but of course, then you also have these sort of classic Hollywood political films that come out of that period. Uh, Mr. Smith votes to Washington uh, deeds, uh, all the, you know, the, excuse me, the the Frank Frank Capra. 
And those are, you know, have are high in both political intent and political content. Um, but it's not surprising that they have a kind of uh, conservative cast to them about what they argue for. Um, there's certainly a populism in Capra's films, and I don't want to downplay that at all. But what the uh, proponents of uh, the system stand for is a very, uh, very, very palatable politics. Uh, support for Boy Scouts, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so, um, and then I just think, I would just also say that I think um, the occasions of war and where the United States is relative to war also has a profound impact on the level of overtly and, uh, yeah, overtly political films and those that, and it even creeps into the films that aren't viewed necessarily as about war or politics. I mean, I, I just, for example, I have a, a 12-year-old son, so I've been seeing some of the blockbusters lately. One is the San Andreas film, and the other we just saw was um, the dinosaur film. Um, Jurassic World. Yes, Jurassic World. And I thought it was interesting that both of them position former soldiers as their white male heroes. They don't address their experience as soldiers. Uh, San Andreas does to, to an extent in that the uh, main character is flying a helicopter and, and he's part of a rescue mission. Um, that's his new job now after po- post-war, post-military uh, service career is now as a rescuer. Uh, and then in the other instance, it's in the Jurassic world, um, he's using the main characters using his skills from his military training, right. and his, you know, his skills on the ground in combat to now tame and somehow have this kind of uncanny ability to communicate to dinosaurs and all in the service potentially of the evil guy who wants to take these dinosaurs to war. So even in films that we would consider low on political intent, low on political content, you see, according to our methodology and what's clear from these films, that ideology, of course, still seeps in. And in this case, as I was saying, when a nation is at war, that seems more pronounced. And so we have a period of war films where uh, the politics of launching the war and continuing to fight the war are integral to the films. Um, these kind of coalesced around the years 2007, 2008, 2009. But now here we are seven years out from that, and we're dealing with characters who are informed by their experience at war, even in these popcorn films, and the films that make room for that um, – and there's a politics to them. And not too surprisingly, you know, the politics is, is pretty conservative. In the case of San Andreas, um, the soldier emerges at the end, having saved uh, the lives of his immediate family. And he surveys the wreckage of San Francisco. And there's an American flag fluttering in the breeze that someone's, you know, in the wake of all this disaster has managed to pin to the remains of the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. And what are the last words he says to close the film? We will rebuild. 
So it's it's all sort of packaged in a very patriotic uh, uh, support uh, for the current system and and the need to simply rebuild, um, not replace, not. Uh, change in some way, but just re- restore, rebuild. Um, there's all kinds of ways to read that language into the current political moment. Yes, I think you're, you're right. I mean, th- of course, that seems to be at least the ones I can think of off the top of my head to be a, a regular concept that you see in the disaster-related films that you, yes. br- that you added. And Independence Day is the one that comes to my mind. It's almost the exact same ending. Deep yes. Impact has basically the exact same ending. Yes. Uh, they're all ending with, we will rebuild. And, and it, um, somehow that has become the norm with this is the way we're going to end our films is, is that we can always rebuild and get back to the way we were. Absolutely. And I do think that the San Andreas film resonates the imagery with very strongly with the 9-11 imagery um, and the destruction of the World Trade Center in particular uh, in New York, uh, the way the buildings come down in San Francisco in the film San Andreas is very um, rich with a kind of borrowing of imagery from the attack on the World Trade Centers and and, and the the way those buildings came down, and then you know the the need to put the flag up. And the desire to see the rescue heroes, or excuse me, the um, first responders as the heroes of the day and, and as a way to kind of blot out the damage and the suffering and uh, the, you know, restoring America. And that is really the pronounced discourse in a movie like San Andreas. And you've got what, but I, what I think is interesting is that, you know, you have a former soldier playing that part, mm-hmm. even though we have in reality, a very complex relationship to returning uh, soldiers from the, the longest wars ever uh, in Afghanistan. And the sort of tortured relationship, at least as it regards to policy towards those veterans and, and what to do for them and their ability to adjust to po- post-war life the demands that were placed on them in Iraq, some of them going for three and four tours of duty, that all gets erased in the image of someone like Dwayne The Rock Johnson it playing this you know, unbeatable hero in San Andreas and then living to raise the flag again on the Golden Gate Bridge. So even in those kind of popcorn movies, you see the politics of the moment rearing up. And because we are still a nation at war, no matter how much we seem to put that to the background or put it to the side, it shows up in films like these. Of course, you could go back and look at the Vietnam War films, the post-Vietnam War films, and it seems like in just about all of them, the uh, main characters who were in the war are always damaged in some way, and they really don't ever improve. I mean, they... Most of the time, they you know, by the end of the film, they're not really better off than they were at the beginning, or, or in some cases, worse. Or in some movies, obviously, thinking of uh, Bruce Dern at the end of, of the now, of course, my mind coming is home. coming home. Thank you, and he kills himself at the end. So I mean, there is this continued 
I mean, you can, the comparisons are pretty, pretty striking between the two eras. Yes. Although I would say that at this point, now maybe I'm over reading the importance of two summer blockbuster movies, but it almost does seem as if we're trying to, that the current ideology is to, in some ways, at least rehabilitate the soldier and in so doing kind of justify or or make peace with having waged these senseless wars um, by allotting the, them these spaces to be heroic or to use their military training uh, in some way that we find interesting and, and rewarding. In the case, I'm just thinking in the case of the dinosaur trainer right. <laughs> in Jurassic World, whereas in the Vietnam era, it was very it, because it was so roundly criticized as a so-called bad war the veterans in that war never really got rehabilitated uh except in the figure of rambo and and the revisionism of the rambo movies but he's still a problem he's he's still agitating and disrupting even in the revisionism around the war whereas it seems like in some of these more current films the war the war informs the character but it doesn't define the character and, and render them problematic. It uh, doesn't turn them into an irritant in, in the social fabric. Um, although there was a time when it seemed like that was the direction in which the war films were going to go, featuring soldiers coming back to the U.S. Now it seems like we're, we're just in this postscript. In fact, we're not. But in the films, it almost seems as if this is a postscript to the war, and oh, by the way, the soldiers are all fine. They're finding jobs that validate their experiences in war, and uh, they're serving American interests in this new, better way. One of the main differences is, I think you're right, is the fact that these days there has been such a major emphasis on making sure that veterans are considered everywhere all the time, and so we we admit that the veterans coming back may have issues from the most obvious the the handy you know those people who've lost limbs or yes. or other things but then we're also worrying about the, the 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 mental aspects the PTSD that's those kind of issues have become more commonplace knowledge for just even the average person so i Absolutely. guess it's not surprised we've got films where we need to see a rehabilitation taking place on screen Right. Although I would say that the rehabilitation seems to take place too quickly and without real consideration of how anyone gets to that point to be a functioning, successful member of society again. It's We've gone from sort of the troubled veteran in the mid-2000s to now the image of the veteran as hero and the, the gap between those two positions um, is not very well considered. I don't think. Um, although I, I, I would agree that we seem to devote more public airtime to the issues of veterans returning. And I think there's a concerted effort not to see them face the same fate as the Vietnam war veterans did. But I don't know that um, it's even yet enough of public policy, much less Hollywood film, to say that these wars have been okay and the people who fought them are okay and everything's, you know, 
going forward now in some, you know, story of American progress. So going into the second part, and we've been sort of talking around some of that material anyway with some of the examples we've given, you go decade by decade. I want to talk mostly about the newest section, but before we talk about that, what were some of the trends? I mean, we we talked already about uh, once the code, what production code went into effect, that that tended to make a big di- make a big difference, change with the type of political films. When did we start to see maybe a lessening of that over time? I mean, obviously, I'm thinking of at least I would assume that we were talking production code being very important going into at least the 50s, if not into the 60s. But where do we start to see a shift where? it becomes less important where you can get around some of the things that were in the code. Oh, in the 1960s, the, the code kind of ends and is replaced by the rating system um, where films are assessed based on the idea of the age of the person going to see them. So you get the PG, the G, the R. Um, and that was related to the demise of the studio system once it had been declared a a monopoly and the antitrust laws came into effect and the studios were broken up. um, Those two things kind of came at, or at least the results of the breakup of the studios and then the onset of the rating system to replace the production code um, happened more or less in the middle of the century. And then that's when you start to see um, more overtly political films and, you know, films with uh, what we call uh, the social value, basically, uh, is more politically obvious. The message film, the concept that you have to have a specific message in your film seems to appear pretty regularly during that period. Right. Although I don't want to overshadow, there was a period in the late 40s and the 50s when the social message film was uh, prominent. But in I'm thinking of our term, which is socially reflective as well, where it's so it's not just, oh, we're going to take the issue of the day and make a film about it. But we're going to create these characters who seem to reflect what's going on in the culture. Um, we call those socially reflective movies. And, you know, obviously this then is in tandem with the politics of the 1960s, which become a reaction, you could say anyway, to the strictures of the 50s, just as the production code dissipates and the culture starts to leave behind some of the mores and traditions of the 50s. um, And this is, of course, very, very broadly speaking. Then the movies start to reflect that at the same time. So then you you get these movies that are just more dealing with more uh, a film like Midnight Cowboy, for Mm -hmm. example, which you would never have seen in the height of the production code. And yet occasionally I'm thinking of maybe I'm going the wrong way with this, but I, the best years of our lives. Yes. I would say that that probably is a, is a great counterexample where they were actually able to make a, a relevant movie that didn't portray soldiers or returning soldiers as total heroes and make a film that has clearly had a sense of, of greater reality to it. 
Absolutely, and especially on the topic that we were discussing, the issue of the returning veteran. Where does he fit in? Is he just a problem? And I think that that film does kind of problematize him, the returning soldier. There is no easy place for any one of those three men to pick back up the pieces of their life and go on. So it does not shirk from that uh, interestingly, though, it, it, it did tone itself down in some ways. The original um, character in the film who is the most physically damaged by the war in that he's lost his arms uh, was scripted actually to have had a severe facial burn. He was supposed, his injury was supposed to be to his face, which was actually very common in World War II. A lot of the uh, wounds from that era or from that fighting and how it was done in that period actually were from there were wounds to the skin a lot of burning uh, fuel on at least in terms of the uh, warfare at sea so anyway he receives his injury in some other way and so that he loses his arms and then of course he's played by a real life uh, w, double amputee um, so there are ways, in other words, that even a film as remarkable as that did tone down, for lack of a better way of putting it, its politics or its social reflection in the character of uh, Homer. Although he's still a very compelling character and, and the things that he goes through in that film are very compelling. And it is a film that seems to want to look directly at an issue that other films of that period certainly want to gloss over or look away from. And so certainly, yes, there are films that come along that break through the code in that, in that instance. I'm not sure we've seen a film that has quite that impact um, or, or even that intention um, so, so much in this period. Let's talk about the, a little bit more about the ones that the, the, what we could best call the, the post-September 11th films, because I think it's pretty obvious, and as you pointed out, as a reason to update the book. Mm-hmm. We have seen an incredible amount of films that can, that have dealt with politics in so many different ways, not just the war ones, but some of the other ones as well. Are there films, what, what, what are examples of films that you should feel in this period have completely rewritten the concept of what a political film is or have completely changed it so that it's such now become such an important as genre in film? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I would say there are a range of films that seem to have rewritten the playbook. I know we want to get away from the war, but I I can't help but uh, draw attention to Zero Dark Thirty as one of these films that can't be overlooked in a discussion like this, Um, not only because of the intention of the filmmaker and the obvious political content of the film, but the fact that it actually entered political discourse uh, with uh, three legacy-building senators responding to it and excoriating it and saying that it, supported torture and and the usefulness of torture and really wanting uh, to call it out on that. Um, It's very rare that films enter political discourse in that way. Uh, 
something that we also deal with in the book is that politicians often use films uh, to say what they want to say, to push a particular policy, to uh, sway a particular audience. They use film rhetoric, but it's rare that a film itself enters into uh, political debate the way that Zero Dark, Thir- Zero Dark Thirty did. And it, the argument over whether it seemed to suggest that torture was um, an efficacious uh, tool in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Of course, the film also ran into controversy because of the obvious fact that the government or parts of the government certainly had no problems assisting the yes. filmmakers because they were hoping to get, and obviously we see that with any film that uses the, any kind of government or, or military aid officially, that there's always that issue of, okay, what do we have to share with them in order to get their cooperation? Absolutely. And, you know, some films, you know, <laughs> drink more deeply from that uh, trough than others. And Zero Dark Thirty, yes, was very controversial for its the support that it received from the CIA. Although the CIA was able to get uh, some changes made, it for the most part was those, uh, excuse me, the changes that the CIA wanted was to keep the main character whose drive to capture Osama bin Laden really propels the film, the character of Maya. Mm -hmm. Um, They were able to get her uh, to not really be participating in the torture scene as much as she had been. I think in the film, as it ends up on screen, she carries the water that someone else uses to essentially waterboard a a terrorism uh, captive. But yeah, I mean that's that is one of the other things that's notable about the film, and and certainly got its fair share of criticism, and was one of the reasons why its opening was delayed until after the 2012 presidential election because that there were accusations that it would tilt the public towards supporting the president if it seemed as if it was somehow his responsibility <laughs> alone that the SEAL team was able to apprehend Osama bin Laden. But I would also point to the success of Spielberg's Lincoln as a marker in all of this. That film, he had a lot of trouble getting it made. At some point he was thinking he was just going to end up making it for TV. He releases it in a year when certainly there are lots of other, you know, cartoon franchises, Iron Man and, and those kinds of things uh, dominating the screens, and it becomes a blockbuster. It becomes a film that you had to go see. And yet it wasn't even so much about Lincoln. I mean, he's obviously the main character, but it's not really a biopic. It's the story of passing the amendment to ban slavery. And you would think that that would be very dry and complicated and not, and that, you know, if you're going to go see a film about Lincoln, you're just going to go see, you know, him in a log cabin and then, you know, shot dead. And the fact that it was able to really bring life to this legislative process and become something that people wanted to see and see again, I think is notable. I mean, there are critics of the film and there are arguments to be made about it, but I do think that you need to give it its due in terms of the cultural moment and the poli- and pol- political film. And the fact that it lost out to another political film <laughs> for the best film of the year at, at the Oscars, which again, that's its own 
you know, deal. I'm not saying that's the, the arbiter of ultimate mm. value, but it is interesting that two political films in 2012 were vying for that place of cultural prominence. It's, you were talking about polit- you know, how politicians use movies sometimes, and I'm totally off out of left field, but it's still a story that comes from the Reagan era when Reagan was president. He would regularly tell a story about a uh, supposed um, Congressional Medal of Honor winner, and he would discuss this person and all he did. And they've since gone back and never was able to find such a person. And they now pretty much think Reagan saw it in a movie, and he somehow became using it on his stump speeches as a, an example of of courage, but turned out not to even be real. Yes, that's yeah, and Michael Rogan has a book about basically the influence of movies on Reagan and basically the idea that almost his entire presidency was defined by that kind of blurring between reality and, and film. Uh, you know, one of his famous lines about I, I'm paying for this microphone was a movie line that he got from uh, from State of the Union. It's a Spencer Tracy line. And... Uh, yeah, there are there are other instances of that, and another person who is in that same vein, although not to the extent that Reagan was, is also would be uh, Newt Gingrich. He was heavily influenced by the films that he saw growing up, and seems to continue to have been in the thrall of films as history lessons. He's he started writing a series of Civil War books, and it was like. I didn't want to read any of them. Of course, they were all fiction, but, you know, that fictional books on a current event, or not a current event in this case, but anyway. But a uh, historical subject that he could right. have actually done research for, and which you would have thought that he would want to do because he'd been a history right. professor. So, but now go on into the third part, which where you do, you've come up with specific uh, genres, or not genres so much as examples uh, not you know different types of films and their importance to politics. L- let's talk about the political uh, political documentaries because obviously, as you pointed out quite rightly, they have grown to an incredible importance and not, not just the importance but the the sheer number of them. Yes. I think part of that's because nowadays anybody can make a documentary and, or a film and say it's a documentary and probably get it published someplace, but or made available someplace, but. How did the political documentary start to become so important, not only in September, post-September 11th, but it even started prior to that, but we've seen it in even later since? Well, I think that you see that the career of Michael Moore and his style of filmmaking, where he blends traditional documentary filmmaking uh, tactics with more narrative filmmaking uh, or fictional narrative uh, filmmaking tactics is when it really kind of starts. At least that's where most people would lay the start of um, the what was called, what, and I think is still going, uh, the golden age of the documentary. It really starts with uh, Roger Moore and his ability to, uh, Michael Moore, excuse me, and his ability to capture a mainstream audience with a nonfiction, what, purports to be a nonfiction film, although he obviously has heavy doses of, of kind of fictional technique in those films. So I would really not, you know, underestimate his significance. Um, I would also say that 
the work of Errol Morris along those along that same time period was um, where the documentary as a kind of taking on a kind of prosecutorial uh, approach to a topic. I'm thinking of the thin blue line mm-hmm. um, and the murder of the Dallas police officer and, and the, the dr- kind of drifter who was convicted for his murder, Rand- Randall Adams and Errol Morris's ability to investigate that case and put together a convincing other side to the story that essentially, you know, challenged the idea that Adams was guilty in a way that was very compelling. Those are some landmarks in documentary filmmaking. Again, I want to just stress that these are just these are films that made it to many screens. Um, There are certainly very many interesting and great documentaries that did not reach a wide audience. But we were looking in our book at um, commercially successful films. And I would, you know, sort of look to that that late 80s, early 90s period as a time when the documentary really started to take on um, that. Uh, popular appeal. And I think that's not coincidental that then not too long after that, you have reality television becoming a genre and overtaking for quite a while the television landscape. And you could argue that, you know, it's (laughs) that (laughs) as, you know, screens come to occupy more and more of our public space and our uh, public imagination from cell phones to watches to just going to a bar and it's covered with television screens that this, this is a, there's a need to kind of weigh in with uh, images of what are con- sold to us anyway, as reality to try to kind of offer a counterbalance to all the uh, virtual realities that we're seeing. So I think that, there's a way that we give this priority or, or some kind of value to documentaries as a counter to the, uh, the, just the sheer level of spectacle that we encounter, even and especially in our politics. I remember for a while there, there would be these incredible diatribes. I guess that's the best word you can use against Michael Moore's films, partly because people would say, this is supposed to be a documentary, but he's got a point of view. Yes. Said, yeah, well, all documentaries have a point of view, even if it's just to teach you a subject and, you know, or something, but they all have points of view and they always have. Yes. But yes, that's true. And, and, and it, yeah. And, and also he was uh, accused of a certain amount of manipulation of his subjects that they seemed to be thinking they were, uh, speaking on one topic or, or being brought in for one reason, but then once the film's been put together and edited in a particular way, they seem to be out of uh, sync with what they were originally brought into the film for, and that there was a certain level of exploitation of, of average people in his films. But, you know, I think that Moore was, he had a long history even before his movies made it big in this kind of truth-telling through video. You added a chapter in this third part that specifically discusses the disaster and apocalyptic films. How what how has this these grown as in importance as they relate to political filmmaking? Besides what we've already talked about with such, you know, with Independence Day and and mm-hmm. and uh San Andreas. 
Well, um, there is a long history in the disaster film. I mean, it, you could, it goes back to even a film like uh, D.W. Griffith's movie Intolerance features these really uh, spectacular scenes of mass destruction, right? When these, the, the uh, gardens of Babylon come tumbling down and these scenes of war and, you know, uh, just chaos on a mass, on a mass level and just movie making that revels in the spectacle of destruction that has a long history in American popular cinema. But what I noticed was that in the, I don't know, well, in 2012 to 2013, for example, there were like, I don't know, 10 or 12 popular films out just in that year that had apocalyptic themes or scenes of mass destruction that were different, the, the, the number of them. And at the same time, there was a kind of apocalyptic language that was seeping into the political discourse of George W. Bush, for example. At one point, he was even asked in a press conference if he thought that we were seeing the end times or if, if there was, a, you know, basically Armageddon was on everyone's mind. So there was a sense in which the political discourse had a corollary in the uh, return of these disaster themes in at the movies. And you could see that there was a sense that post 9-11, post Katrina, then uh, the 2008 financial disaster, that, that, you know, there, there was reason why the cultural imagination was taken with the idea of complete implosion or explosion or destruction. And the desire at the same time, I think, not just to revel in destruction, but the idea to wipe the current system away and move on to something else. Now, sometimes that moving on to something else looks very much like the thing that had been destroyed. So there's, there's a nostalgia to it and there's a desire just to go back and redo, but redo it better. On the other hand, there's also just this sense of let's be done with it already, that this is crashing this, you know, let's, this ship has sailed. Let's just move on to some, some better post-apocalyptic moment, even if it, you know, means the destruction of all we know. Not just the post, it's the apocalyptic films, but it's the post-apocalyptic films that we see now. Yes. Where the world has changed for the worse. We've been thinking of Hunger Games and The Mouse yes. and one other movies that are similar where we want to, you know, and it's generally things are worse. But it's just that they have become the norm anymore that these dystopian films where the world has changed for the worse and something happened so catastrophic that it wiped out just about everybody. Right. And a lot of these directors, well, some I'm thinking of uh, directors of films like The Road and Children of Men, they deliberately weave together a post-apocalyptic scenario that has enough kind of cues to the present moment that it, it's so clearly um, a sense that the apocalypse has happened. We may think that we haven't lived through the apocalypse, but these films uh, imbricate scenes and images and characters and moments generally that resonate with 
the here and the now. I'm thinking like in the road, it was filmed just outside of Pittsburgh in these deserted roads and um, abandoned industrial sites so that you don't have to construct some superficial post-apocalyptic landscape. You just find one in the, in, you know, the barren fields of the U.S. And there you have your believable post-apocalyptic nightmare where, you know, it's war of all against all. And I think one of the main things that I've seen in these disaster films that you've brought up, to me at least, the difference is, is we, yes, you're right, we've had disaster films forever. But the sheer destruction that you see in some of these disasters, I mean, it's not just hundreds of people, it's not even just thousands of people being killed. We're talking millions or possibly billions of people being killed in mm-hmm. some of these films where just the sheer magnitude not to use a word there, but like mm-hmm. San Andreas, it's just unbelievable how many people are dying and it's just, okay, let's just move on to, to what happens next. Right. It's almost like a purging, um, a, a, a sort of, you know, well, there were too many people anyway. <laughs> I'm sort of thinking of um, World World War Z when you talk about uh, films that focus on vast numbers of people killed like San Andreas. Yes. It's clear that a lot of people are going to die, but, or are dying in the film, but it's mainly focused on the destruction of buildings, which is why it to me resonates with the attacks on the world trade center. But world war Z is much more focused on the destruction of bodies because that's how the disaster takes place. It's the spread of this zombie Mm -hmm. Zombification, uh, so that it's taking place at the level of the population as opposed to uh, the infrastructure. Of course, George Romero has made a career out of making destruction of the universes, but um, so it's not a surprise that they're still going on. But you're right, just the sheer quantities, and part of that's the ability now to portray practically everything, anything you want on a on a on the, on the screen, given the abilities of CGI and other techniques. Yes, that's, uh, yeah, that's very true. But I do think, you know, we are in a zombie moment. Maybe it's coming to, maybe petering out a bit, but there's definitely this sense of um, a romance with zombies and the, I don't know, the notion, you know, yeah, to to borrow a Romero idea, you know, the living dead, um, so that it becomes a kind of cultural diagnosis that... Somehow this post-apocalyptic life is uh, an emptied out one. It's, you know, as much a matter of the human experience as it is point in time politically and ecologically. It's also about who we are and what our life experience amounts to in this cultural moment. I didn't mean to skip over the chapters related to race and gender, though they are definitely just as important. But that's why I wanted to make sure I got to the current you know the newest chapter. Uh, are you seeing? Have you seen obvious changes in the last since the first edition of the book, where with films related to race and gender, or are we still dealing with some of the very same issues that we've been dealing with uh, over forever? Well, I think yeah, change is slow, and if you look at the industry, it still has the same. Because again, we're focused on popular film in our book. It still has the same problems with race and gender uh, as it has for a long time, but there is some glacial change uh, in terms of 
films just being about, for example, the African-American experience. And one of the things that I noticed in writing that chapter about African-American experience in film is that for a long time, as Hollywood fortunes have shifted and the need to export the product increased, the sales of DVDs and the actual drop in the number of people going to the theater in the U.S., there was a fear that that would mean to even fewer films, black-themed films, would make it because the argument would be, well, that doesn't sell abroad. But in 2013, there was kind of this mini renaissance of films with black characters in the lead and um, expressly being about black experience, black identified stories anyway, that were also cast with international um, casts so that you had that built in international appeal in what would have in a previous decade been seen as a kind of limited film with limited appeal because, oh, of course, the African-American experience is somehow um, too singular and too um, narrow for an international audience. But recently that logic is being defied and these films are being made and they're being exported and, and evidently making money. How have uh, what are your writing plans going forward? Do you have other projects in development? I do. I'm actually looking at the representation of disability in war films um, because I'm interested in some of what we were talking about the the issue of the soldier as social problem and the rehabilitation of the soldier in American life. And then what I'm really interested in is that that you alluded to earlier, I think, veterans from these wars are able to, first of all, they are surviving wounds that would have killed them in even just the Persian Gulf War Mm -hmm. because of the advances in medical care out in the field. But what that has meant is that they come back missing limbs, sporting prosthetics, And I'm really interested in how that's being portrayed on film. And um, I'm also interested in the ways that film technology and, for lack of a better term, body technology seem to affect one another. For example, it's a very, very silly movie, but I'm very interested in it. It's uh, called Battleship. It came out in 2013. And the war that's depicted isn't even um, Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm. It's this alien invasion. And it's, you know, it's a very, again, the dialogue is, is forgettable. And well, all that, that usually happens when you base a, build, uh, a movie on a board <laughs> game. So I understand. Exactly. I don't even need to explain that. But the technology that's featured in the film. First of all, it gives a prominent space to veteran rehabilitation. One of the, there's a a couple sequences shot in a, you know, VA hospital where these soldiers are receiving what looks to be, you know, top of the line care, very technologically advanced care. So unlike most films, it really does highlight that, but it does so in a kind of almost like it's an advertisement for the VA 
um, and or an ad for the latest prosthetic technology. But that's okay. I mean, it's the fact that it shows up at all is interesting to me. But then there's this uh, use of visual technology in the film and the various ways that that we see things from characters' perspectives, including those of the alien and the people who are fighting the alien using these very sophisticated technological weapons is interesting to me because it seems to have some kind of corollary in the uh, rehabilitation and, you know, transitioning of the body into a, almost a post-human body. So uh, that's where I'm, obviously, I'm in the very, very, very early stages of research, but I'm, I, that's where I'm, that's where I'm going right now. And that, that started with uh, writing about war films in this book. I'm just thinking, talk about technology to this day. Probably one of the most interesting examples was in Forrest Gump where, um, the character of Lieutenant Dan, they were able to so completely use techniques to make it seem like he was really an amputee that many people didn't understand that Gary Sinise wasn't an amputee when that film first came out. They believed that he was because of the way he, they were able to show him in the film. Yeah, that is such a good example. And he, that's a very interesting character because he's really uh, part of that Vietnam War bad war, mm-hmm. bad veteran, or sorry, but, you know, really sort of a, a abject kind of veteran uh, character or figure. And, yeah, and I think that that's actually interesting, too, because the Vietnam War veteran is almost always signified by the wheelchair. A lot of the Vietnam War era war movies signified the soldier through the wheelchair. If you If you were damaged in that war, it was to your limbs and you were in a wheelchair. You don't see that today. That's not that the wheelchairs are gone. Mm -hmm. Um, The prosthetic technology is so advanced that the new sign of the, of the warrior is the, is the limb, the the prosthetic limb. And I am just interested in how that's being either portrayed or alluded to. And in some instances, you know, suppressed uh, in these films. Well, thank you for talking to me, Elizabeth. This book is incredibly interesting, and I, I think the fact that you were able to update it to include some more recent, to give it a, that new uh, aspects to it, some of the changes that, that are obvious, it makes it even more interesting, not only as a textbook, but an overall general overview of the genre. So thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much, Joel. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Elizabeth Haas for her great overview of a topical movie genre. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.